Well, good morning, Oak Grove. So I am so uncool, it hurts. So while, while Brandon led us in that beautiful time of worship and we were transitioning into prayer, well, I sat down and sat on my water bottle and exploded like a geyser. <laughs> Went down the back of my shirt and britches and everything else. And I, good night. And sorry, Brandon, they were all, everybody was like all serious and like the first three rows over here are laughing. <laughs> so that's on me. So by the way, if I pretend to be cool, just know that's not the case. So, hey, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 11 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there. We're going to be looking at the, the life of David. Oh, not first, thank you. There we go, 2 Samuel. Um, but, but before we dive into the word, let's, let's open with a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for your kindness to us. Lord, I just pray right now that through the, the opening of your word, your spirit would speak to our hearts. And maybe, maybe there's a callus somewhere where we've grown hard to one of our sins. Lord, I just pray that you would open our eyes and that you would gently and softly rebuke our spirit, that we would, that we would repent, we would turn to you, and we would celebrate the Savior of our salvation, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you remember the, the, the old Las Vegas act, Siegfried and Roy? The, the youth, they might be a little young. So if you've probably seen pictures of them. They, they were the ones that had the, the little Siberian tiger cubs that they were always in pictures with. And they had these big flamboyant jackets with sparklies and glitters. And... Um, in the early 2000s, they were like on the cover of everything. Like when you're standing to check out at Walmart, like they were, they were on entertainment tonight and they, they were just all over the place. So in 2003, they were, they were celebrating uh, Roy Horn of Siegfried and Roy's 59th birthday. There were, there were 4,000 people in attendance and the show ended abruptly with Roy being drugged off the stage by one of those 400-pound tigers. And I remember watching the, um, the, the news clips after of people shocked that, that, that he was attacked. And, and they kept repeating this phrase, nobody saw it coming. Really? A Siberian tiger is an apex predator. And nobody saw this coming. Um, I was reading some articles uh, where Roy was interviewed, and they asked why he thought he was attacked. And um, his assessment, after all, all the things I read, basically, he felt like he thought he was in control of the situation. He thought he was in control of the tiger because he had raised it up since it was a little cub. 1 Peter 5.8 presents the devil and sin as a roaring lion, seeking whom they may devour. Your sin will destroy you even if you think you have it in check. So how does, how does this happen? Well, we've got a little pet sin, right? A little sin we think we can control, a little baby sin, a little sin cub, if you will. 
And we, we coddle it and we pet it. And then when does a baby tiger become a big tiger? Over time? And that, that sin just grows and grows and grows. You see, Roy was not mauled by a tiger cub, was he? He was mauled by a grown tiger. He thought he was in control. David thought in our story this morning that he was in control. So let, let me give you a little, a little taste of what happens. He goes and takes a peek where he thought there would be some beautiful women. And the story quickly escalates to him impregnating um, one of his best friend's wives and then having his friend killed. Do you think that David started out with that intent? I don't. I think it grew and the situation got it out of control rapidly. And when I think about sin in my life and when I think about sin in other people's lives that, that I counsel, it all starts with that, that baby sin that we think we're in control of. But let's talk about the sin spiral real quick. That's what we're going to see in the, the text. And you'll see it on the, 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 the screen the progression of David's sinful spiral is the same for me and you. So David was passive to God's call. We're going to see that in the text. And his passivity led to compromise, and his compromise led to sin. So if you're a note taker, passivity leads to compromise, and compromise leads to sin. But my favorite thing about this story is that God does not leave David in his sin. Now, the story doesn't end in chapter 11. It actually ends in chapter 12 and in Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, we're going to see that David cries for repentance and he finds it. He finds the joy of the Lord. He finds forgiveness. And it's the same for me and you. Look, God forgave David. And more than likely, we have not sinned to the degree that David sinned in this story. But even if you have there's forgiveness for you too. So my plea to you this morning is that you would repent like David and be filled with the joy of the Lord. So if you're a note taker, here, here's the main point of the sermon this morning. The cost of compromise is destruction. That's, that, it's clear in our text. You're going to not only destroy yourself, but you're going to destroy the lives around you. But it does not end there. But Christ... His compassion calls us out of darkness. So the cost of compromise is destruction, but Christ's compassion calls us out of darkness. So if you will, let's, let's look at our text, but let me, let me bring you up to speed if maybe you're not familiar with the life of David. So we're in the Old Testament. Um, David is the one in the Bible who's named as a man after God's own heart. Not only that, you, 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 we all know the story of David and Goliath, right? This is that David he, with the sling, Wax Goliath in the, in the head, goes over there, takes his sword, chops his head off, and we read this to our children at night as bedtime stories. <laughs> Bit gruesome, but that's this David. This David is the one who brought revival into Israel after the wicked king's last rule, after Saul. He's the one that brought the Ark of the Covenant back. David is now king, and this is later in his life that we're reading this story. I mean, David, the only one pictured maybe better than him in the Bible at this point, Moses, maybe. 
Like, he's the Old Testament rock star. All right? So now let's look at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. All right. So verse one, we're going to see David's passivity. So I'm going to need some help reading this real quick. So let's, let's be good Bible readers. So David is the king. So in the spring of the year, when, when kings go out to battle, what did David do? He sent Joab. Who's king? David. In the time when kings go out to war, David stayed home. He sent someone else to do what he was called to do. And David's greatest failure, we're reading that this morning, all starts with David being passive to the call that the Lord put on his life. The question I want to ask you this morning, because we don't need to rush past this idea, where are you passive to the call that the Lord's put on your life? Because passivity leads to compromise and compromise leads to sin. Maybe, okay, I think a lot of things that we, we might look at, they might be evidence of the smaller thing. I want to talk about the basic things. We are called to an intimate relationship with the God of our salvation. Where does, that, where, where does the intimacy with God happen? on our knees. It happens in prayer. It happens in the word. There's no way that we can end around that. So the, my question for you this morning is, are you being passive? When was the last time that you spent multiple days in a row praying to the Lord? When was the last time you consistently read the Bible? I think one of our problems is we get lulled into believing as believers, we're in peacetime. Are we at peace right now? Are we? I almost knocked that water bottle over again. Are we in peacetime right now or are we at war? We're at war. But we're slowly lulled because we've compromised. We've become passive to the, to the things. Our hearts have become numb to the spiritual warfare around us. And how do we fight these battles that God has called us to fight? With, with bullets? On our knees and in the word. When we, when we get out of the word, our intimacy we, we start losing intimacy with the Lord. When we become passive to the basic things, we don't have intimacy with God anymore. Look, look at the screen. I want you to see this, that passivity will permeate your life and you're gonna look up and wonder where your intimacy with Christ has gone and why your life has fallen apart. God has... He, there's a rest time coming. We have the eternal Sabbath coming. But until then, in a time when kings go out to war, 
We are soldiers. In the time when soldiers go out to battle, have you sent somebody to fight in your stead? Have you, have you farmed out the discipleship of your children to the children's program or to the youth department? Have you farmed out evangelism to your hired holy people up here? Did you know uh, there was a, a, a Barna poll a couple years ago. It said 82% of non-believers would likely visit a church if invited by a friend. I'm not even going as far as saying, hey, share the gospel. I'm saying, have you just invited them to church? Have you become passive and believed that the Facebook ad's gonna do it? Guys, we're at war. And, and the, the tools we have to fight don't look like the tools of the wor- world. And when we become passive in, on our knees and in the word, compromise is around the corner. So let's look at that in, in verses two through four. So David was passive to his call. He sent Joab to do the work of the king. And David sent... He sent Joab to war, so passivity is going to lead to compromise. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And, And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? All right, so let's let's paint the picture a little bit. So don't think like a pitched roof like what we have in America. Think, think flat roof, and the roof would act like a porch. It was a place to hang out. So during the day, the, the, the women would work, and it was culturally appropriate that at night, the women would go and bathe themselves on the roof to be out of eyesight of, of the males, okay? And you'd be like, it, it, this, how, how this is written, it almost seems like David accidentally stumbled upon this. So Friday night in the fall in China Spring, unless it's a bye week, where's everybody at? <laughs> Culturally, we know they're at the football game most likely. It didn't just so happen that there was a naked lady on the roof. David, he compromised himself. He put himself in a place that he should not be. And in so doing, he compromised himself and he compromised this person who he was supposed to be protecting. And this is a point of warning. Don't compromise yourself by putting yourself in positions to sin. Now, when, we, when we're passive, that's what, that's what creates that snowball, right? Right? You know, it all seemed very innocent that David just was walking on the rooftop. But David, he was looking. It might seem innocent to you to give that coworker of the opposite sex a ride home. You're walking on the rooftop. Starting that message thread with that married person that you happen to find attractive and you wouldn't mind a little bit of their attention. You're just walking on the rooftop. Man, if you struggle with pornography, most of the apps, these social media apps, they are suggestive and they will lead you somewhere else. You don't need that app for work. You don't need that app. 
Give me an excuse why. And all I'm telling you is you're walking on rooftops. Don't be surprised when you look up and the snowball has happened and your family is destroyed around you. David, he covets and he wants this woman for himself. And I believe that the woman, he knows who, he is, who she is because she's close enough that he knows that she's beautiful. Um, she's, her husband's one of David's mightiest men. We're going to talk about that here in a second. And we find that in Chronicles. He would have known who this woman was. Um, so David, he calls us a servant and he says, hey, I see this woman. I want this woman. Go get this woman. And God is silent throughout this whole story till the very end. And, um, but I believe God's speaking through the servant right here. He says, isn't this Eliam's daughter, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Those are both people David knows. David had the opportunity to flee, but he was already passive. His heart had grown callous. And I believe, like, David's the guy who wrote most of the Psalms. I don't believe that David's spending any time with the Lord. His heart has grown callous. There's no intimacy with God because God would be speaking to him. He, he doesn't flee. So let's talk about Eliam, why David would have known who that is. So in 2 Samuel 20, 23, 34, in 1 Chronicles 3, 5, Eliam, the woman's father, is one of David's most trusted counselors and greatest warriors. Do you believe that had she not been married, that Eliam would have given his daughter to, to David as a wife? You better believe it. Eliam loved David. Her husband, Uriah the Hittite, this dude is bad to the bone when you read about him. He, he is the equivalent of like a Navy SEAL in, in the Israeli army. So in, in 1 Chronicles 11.41 and 2 Samuel 23, Uriah is listed twice as one of David's 31 greatest warriors who ever served him. This, this is Uriah. Bathsheba loved David. Uriah loved David. Elaim loved David. And because David was willing to compromise himself, he was also willing to compromise these people around him. David compromised and he put all these people in, in, in situations they never should have been. And his temptation gave birth to sin. And this applies to us. This applies to me and you. We're, we're not Uriah in this story. We're not the victimized Bathsheba in this story. We're David in this story. And when, when you're passive, you're going to start putting yourself in compromising places. So he sees the woman. He wants the woman. The woman's not his wife. He takes her anyway. So let's look at verses 4 through 27. And we're going to see the sin and the cover-up. So verse 4. So David sent a messenger, and he took her, and he came into her, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So put yourself real quick in David's shoes. You know when you've done something bad and you're getting caught? That... That lump gets right there. I don't know. The lump starts like right here for me. And all the, all the blood runs out of your face. 
and your stomach starts to churn? That's David right now. He's got to come up with a plan, and he does. David hears this, and he panics so that he doesn't lose face with the community and doesn't have to face the wrath of Uriah. He, he, he's got a really good idea of how he believes he's going he's gonna to cover this up. And look at this. David has no concern here for the Lord's glory, but for David's glory. That's what happens when we get stuck in this sin cycle. We're, we're, we're more concerned about hiding things. And the gospel reveals, by the way, the gospel reveals sin. It doesn't cover sin up. So if you're sitting here and you, you feel like you've got to pretend and hide all this stuff, that's anti-gospel. The gospel reveals, the gospel confesses, the gospel, in the gospel, that's where we find forgiveness and grace. So David gets this idea, all right, I can bring Uriah home, ask news about the war, because that's something a king who should be at war would, would want to know. And Uriah, he'll go home to his wife to a warm embrace and no one will know anything. So verse six, that's where we're picking up in the story. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Like, I love how the author just, like he's making fun of David here. Like he's just making some small talk. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. I believe that's probably a euphemism. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark... And Israel and Judah dwell in booths. Those are tents. They dwell in tents. And my, my, my Lord Joab and, and the servant of my Lord are, are camping in open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Can, can you feel David's frustration right here? He weaves together what he feels like is just this, 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 this foolproof plan. But Uriah is so virtuous, he considers his comrades at war and what they're suffering and doesn't feel like he should enjoy any comforts at home as long as they're in the field suffering. So he just sleeps with the rest of David's servants. And Uriah, he also mentions the, the Ark of the Lord here. And you got to remember, the ark of the Lord is, is the place um, where, where the presence of the Lord dwelt on earth. It, it, the, that's where the Holy of Holies, uh, in the Holy of Holies would have been the, the ark of the Lord. And they would take the ark of the Lord to war with them. And when the ark would go with them, they would win. So the, the ark, God's presence isn't in, in the temple or isn't in the tabernacle. Where, like, I'm not going to enjoy comforts when the ark's not at rest. Uh, many, many commentators, in my opinion, rightfully believe another reason he would not have gone home and, um, 
and lay with his wife is because in other military conflicts, David required soldiers to carry out a ritual state of purity. And look, it's not prescribed by the Bible as something soldiers should do, but you got to understand their mindset. And this helps us understand Uriah's action because they, he saw this as a, as a religious war, as a duty to, to the Lord, not just to David. So Uriah's refusal to, to go be with his wife would have been a sign of devotion to the Lord. Ritual purity prescribed um, in Leviticus necessarily means refraining from sexual contact. So if Uriah, again, we got to put ourselves in Uriah's mind as why he's doing this. Uh, so you remember the, 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 the battle of Jericho. They marched around the city of Jericho. The walls came a tumbling down. And all good stuff happened, right? They, uh, but God told them not to do one thing, not to take some of the stuff out of the city. One dude did. Dude didn't even go to the next fight, which was AI. AI, look, so imagine attacking Jericho would be like attacking Waco and then going and attacking Valley Mills. Like, well, Valley Mills dominated Israel and a lot of people died. And it's because there was sin in the camp of one. And put yourself in, in the shoes of of uh, Uriah, he doesn't want to be the cause of one of his brothers being injured, one of his brothers dying because of him now being in a state of ritual impurity. Again, this is not prescribed by the Bible, but this is what's, what's influencing his actions. So, but here's like, that wasn't Uriah's thing he put on, that, that was David's standard. But when you fall into sin, you're willing to not only compromise your own standards, but the standards and virtues of others. And I think about seasons when I've been in seasons of sin. I know that's been true of me. Those closest to me, I encourage to walk in those same sins so as not to feel bad about what I'm doing. So David, David is furious and he comes up with another plan. And this time he's going to make sure that Uriah is good and drunk so that his morals are hushed. And he goes down to his house. And at this point, he doesn't even need Uriah to lay with his wife. He just needs Uriah to go through the front doors. Because once he goes into the house, as far as all the people of the city are concerned, that's not David's kid. So here comes round two, verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem a day, uh, that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in the presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So here's the deal. Either David did his job way too well, and he was too, too drunk to stumble home. Or a drunk Uriah was more pious than a sober David. Either way, he didn't go home. Um, he slept where the other servants of David slept. And David was done playing games at this point. He, he put a note in Uriah's hand and told him to take it to Joab. And in the note, it, it, was, it was Uriah's death sentence. So what, what we're about to read is, Uriah was to be put where the fighting was the, the hottest and then to withdraw 
all the troops around him so that Uriah and his men would be flanked and killed. Uriah was so loyal to David, he didn't even peek. He delivers that to him. So let's, let's look at verse 14. We're going to read it quite a bit here. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter, um, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him that he might be struck down and die. And Joab was besieging the city, and he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought, Joab, fought with Joab, and some of, the save, uh, some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling the news about the fighting to the king, then if he's angry, and if his anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he, would, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So here's the deal about David. You know the, the phrase, don't kill the messenger? David was kind of bad about that. So um, he's trying to give him an excuse to, to not get in trouble. And another cool thing is that whole thing about the Thebes and the, the, the they're studying war. Um, that, that's one of the wars that's mentioned in the Old Testament. The, these guys are studying war by reading about these old wars. So they knew not to get too close to the wall, but that's just kind of a side point that I think is neat. So the messenger, he, 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 verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab sent to tell him. And the messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but they drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot your servants from the wall. So some of the king's servants are dead. He doesn't even wait. He, <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't want David to get mad. Some of your servants are dead and your the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Don't let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and, and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. David is the man after God's own heart. In the, God says that about David, because God is a shepherd, as David was a shepherd. And David was to be a shepherd king, one who loved and cared for his people. But his heart was so calloused by his sin. Not only did he not mourn over Uriah dying, which was one of his friends, he didn't mourn about any of those other men dying. He's so hard, he says, basically this ancient proverb, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. All right, now go make sure Joab's not sad about this and win the war. That's how, that's how callous his heart had become. So look at verse 26. When Uriah, when, when the wife of Uriah had heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
So David takes uh, Bathsheba to be his wife. And I love the ESV. That's the translation I read out of. But they do not do a good job here translating this. It's not like, it's not like David just got the Lord's drink order wrong at a restaurant. I think, I think the CSB, um, the, the Christian Standard of the Holman, they, they do a much better job translating this. Um, it says, however, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. God is not indifferent to our sin. You got to understand that. What David did was evil. And when you read the story, you should have no other assessment than what David did to be evil. What David did was evil. As we meditate on the scripture and we gaze deeply into it, what I want you to see is this isn't a, a telescope by which to look into the past. This scripture is a mirror. And David's actions should reflect on you. Like I told you earlier, we're not the murdered Uriah, the righteous Uriah. We're not the victimized Bathsheba in the story. We're David in this. You should rightly look at what David did and said, God should punish him for this. God should pour his wrath out on him for this. Well, God's wrath was poured out for what David did. And it was poured out on the person of Christ. The God's wrath was poured out for all the things we've ever done. And it was poured out on the person of Christ. Christ took it all on himself. And he paid our debt. And if you would just repent and believe, the Bible tells us you will be saved. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, he says, all who come, Come to me all heavy laden and I will give you rest. You'll find freedom. But the story, it doesn't end with David being in the pit. It ends in, ver in, in chapter uh, 12. God sends this man, Nathan, to David. It's, he's a prophet. And he tells the story about this this, so you got to remember that the king acted as a judge. So Nathan comes and he, he gives this report to David. He says, there's a, a poor man. He had one sheep that he loved very much. He, he treated it like a child. You know how we treat our dogs. He treated that sheep like a child. It lived in the house with him. It slept with his kids. And there was a rich man who, who had some friends over for a party. He had, he had massive herds and he went and took the poor man's sheep and slaughtered it and fed it to his friends so that they could have a party and David is just enraged David David says bring this man before me and I'll have him executed and that's where Nathan has that famous line you are the man maybe maybe we're here this morning and, and as believers we're blinded by our sin. Where are you the man? Where, where are you living in sin? Where, where have you had this little, this little sin cub that's grown into something else? Search your hearts. 
Because don't you want the freedom and the presence of the Lord living in your life? David, after a long period of time, he's broken by this. this, And this is where we get the, the famous words from Psalm 51. This is David's cry for forgiveness for this specific instance. And this is what he says. Hide your face from my sin and, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Maybe you're here this morning and you need renewal. Pray this prayer. Our God is kind and merciful and will forgive you. Just say, God, hide, hide my sin from your face. He tells us he'll throw our sin into a sea of forgetfulness. Hide your sin. Make, give me a right heart. Blot out my iniquity. Blot out my sin. What is that thing as we've talked about this over and over that just keeps popping in the back of your mind and you just feel like you can't let it go? I, I, I came up here last night and I was praying for you that you would lay it down today. Do we want to be a people who sees the Lord move through our community? We've got to be a people of repentance. I want to encourage you with this last thing before we go. You know, David didn't want to take shame, so he allowed his servant to die and bear his shame. The shepherd king, Christ, he took our shame on his behalf. He took our shame. He bore it to the cross. He bore it to Calvary and he buried it in the grave. There is so much more grace in Christ than sin in us. One of my favorite hymns, it's a new hymn. It's called His Mercies Are More. I want to read this, this to you real quick. It says, one of the lines, what riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood beneath a debt that we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercies are more. We are great sinners, but we have a much greater Savior. This morning, don't let that thing that you brought in here leave with you. Don't love it more than you love Christ. We're going into a, a time of reflection as the band comes forward. And the altar is open. Come and confess. Come and celebrate the God of your salvation and the God of forgiveness. If you, if you want somebody to pray with you, I'm gonna be over here. Maybe you've got a, a, a wayward child that you see this going on. I'm gonna be here. I wanna pray with you because we're, where do we fight battles? It's in prayer. Maybe, maybe you wanna accept Christ for the first time. We'll, we'll be down front and we wanna pray with you. I'm gonna... I'm gonna as we bow our heads, I ask that you would stand to your feet.